Pastor David Jones. Welcome to my sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. Let's start with our key verse found in your bulletin. Zechariah 4.6 It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Zechariah 4.6 We're in the ninth week of a series called The River of Life, going through the Bible, looking at where the river of life appears and sinks and reappears, springs up, and I'm recording this, and there will be uh, available if anybody has missed any of them and is interested. We have looked, we started at the beginning of the Bible when God created the universe, God created everything, and then He created human beings to take care of it and to share God's love. But as human beings tend to do, they decided to go their own way instead of God's way, and they messed everything up. So God tried to work with the human race a couple different times and they just didn't get it. And finally God said, all right, I'm just going to, maybe they'll get it, maybe they'll pay attention if I just pick one nation, one group of people, and let them demonstrate that things really do work better if they live life the way I designed it. So he chose Abraham and raised up the Hebrew nation and Then Moses led them out of slavery, and they went into the wilderness. God gave them detailed instructions on how to maximize the blessing potential of this life. And then he sent them into the promised land, and he gave them a thousand years to see what they could do with it. And they still didn't get it. They still kept messing up. It wound up with a civil war between the north and the south. And finally... God said, they're just not getting it. Maybe if I remove them out of the promised land again and send them someplace different where faith in me is the only thing they have to hold them together as a people, maybe then they'll get it. So he allowed the Babylonian Empire to conquer them and carry them off into exile for 70 years, and that's where we left them last week. We are... Picking up with the return, as you heard from uh, Ashland's reading, the first reading, King Cyrus of Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire, and one of the first things he did was let the Jews return home and rebuild the city. Nehemiah followed along and uh, continued that, and they rebuilt the wall, they rebuilt the temple after a couple different starts. And Ezra, a couple of chapters after the reading that we heard, in Ezra 3 it says they were laying out the foundation of the new temple because it had been totally destroyed. So they had to start right from the ground up and lay out a foundation. It says, then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who'd seen the first temple 
It must have been, these must be people in their 70s and 80s who saw it as a child. Many of them wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy, and the joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. The temple was the center of their identity as a nation. And so one of the first things they did was rebuild the temple to worship God. And it was such an emotional thing that there was a mix of of people crying. Some people say that the old ones were crying just because they had longed to see this day when the temple was finally going to be rebuilt. Other commentators think that they were crying. Maybe some some were crying for one reason and and some for another. Others think that, that at least some of them were crying because they saw the foundation and they said there's no way this can be as big and beautiful as the temple Solomon built that was torn down. And they were crying about that. But for whatever reason, they, were, they had returned. They were back in Jerusalem. God had brought them back from exile and brought them home. And they rebuilt the temple. So that's the history part of this last little bit of the Old Testament. Return from exile, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls. But another part of what was going on during this time was the prophets were prophesying what was to come. And a big part of the prophecies were prophecies of a future deliverer. A future king to once again sit on the throne of David. Someone sent from God to set things right. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. Deliverer. The Greek translation is Christ. And so the prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to the coming of Jesus are called messianic prophecies. One of the ones that we hear a lot around Christmas, and by the way, that's why we're singing a couple of hymns that we normally hear in December reading up to Christmas, because they talk about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And Micah 5 says, But you, O Bethlehem of Franklin, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. This particular messianic prophecy, they range all the way from uh, throughout the Old Testament and, and all of the prophets, but this particular one takes place during the exile, but before the return. And so it mentions Bethlehem, it mentions a ruler, mentions origins from distant past, which implies something about not just a normal human being. It mentions the exile and promises return from exile 
It talks about a strong leader who will lead them to live in undisturbed peace. So these are the hopes that the people developed after returning from exile. They found that you can go home again, but it's not going to be the same when you get there. And none of it was the way they remembered it. Even when they tried to rebuild the temple, it wasn't the same. And it caused some of them to cry. So that's basically where the Old Testament ends. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a gap, a time span of 400 years that's referred to sometimes as the 400 silent years. Because God didn't give any prophecy or anything that was written down as part of the Bible for that 400 years. But that doesn't mean that nothing was happening. Much of what happened during that time was prophesied by Daniel. We talked a little bit about that last week. And basically, that 400 years can be divided into four sections of about 100 years each. After the Persians allowed the Jews to return and rebuild, the Persians continued to rule Israel for another 100 years. And then Alexander the Great came along, and he conquered the Persian Empire, including Israel. One of the things Alexander did was to spread the Greek language and culture around the known world. Part of that was translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so other people could read it. And it's, it's interesting that many of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are taken from the Greek translation rather than the Hebrew. So that's how pervasive it had become. And Greek philosophy was spread around. When Alexander died, there were various power struggles, and the guy that wound up in charge of Israel was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who did not follow along with the previous ideas of allowing the Jews to continue to worship in their own way. As a matter of fact, he threw out the rightful line of priests. He said, I don't care if your laws say a priest has to be from the, the tribe of Aaron, from the descendant of Aaron. I don't care. I'm throwing them all out and I'm going to put in a bunch of priests that will do things the way I want. And then he went farther than that. He went right into the temple and built a pagan altar next to God's altar went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig in the temple. Now, you can imagine what that would do to the Jewish people, for whom a pig is an unclean animal. One commentator I was looking at said they considered it the equivalent of rape. So the Greeks ruled the area for a hundred years, but that pretty much did it. When, when Antiochus Epiphanes did that, a Jewish man, a priest named Mattathias and his sons fomented a rebellion. And they were actually successful at driving the Greeks out 
They were so strong, they, they became known, they were called the Maccabees, which is hammer. They were uh, a Jewish hammer. So MC Hammer wasn't the first one. And they actually were independent for about a hundred years. Then the Romans came. Romans conquered the area as part of conquering all of that area. And they ran things in the country for the last hundred years before Jesus and during the whole New Testament and after that. Part of what happened there was the Old Testament was translated into Latin. And there were various other kinds of changes that you'll see mentioned in the New Testament that came about during these 400 years with these different rulers and so on. Aramaic replaced Hebrew as the everyday language of the people. The temple was unusable because even though it had been rebuilt, it had been desecrated. And so because of that, and probably actually started during the exile when they couldn't get to the temple, they invented the synagogue system for keeping the faith alive. And two kind of uh, religious political parties rose up that we hear about in the New Testament. The Pharisees, who were the Jewish fundamentalists, they were so concerned that people not break the law of God that they added stricter laws. They called it putting a fence around the law. They said, if you don't break our man-made tradition, then that will guarantee that you won't get all the way over here to breaking God's law. So they made things even more stringent. And that is in the New Testament when you hear Jesus talking about your traditions. He's not canceling out the law that God gave, especially the moral law, but he's, he's uh, canceling out the traditions of the Pharisees. And the other party was the Sadducees, who were the Jewish religious liberals. They saw Judaism more as a way of life. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in uh, life after death, that kind of thing. One other important thing happened during this time, and that is, have you ever seen a Bible that had a bunch of books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Maybe a Catholic Bible. Uh, it's common. These books are called uh, the Apocrypha. Uh, Protestants call them the Apocrypha. Catholics call them deuterocanonical books, meaning a second canon. They're history books like the Maccabees that, that tell the history of the Jewish revolt. There's some poetry wisdom books. There's some stories. There's one called Bell and the Dragon. And the, uh, the Catholic and Eastern churches call them deuterocanonical, meaning they're a, a second list. The canon is, is the inspired books. And then these are a little less inspired. Inspired maybe like a book Billy Graham write, might write, but not inerrant like the rest of the Bible. And Protestants call them the Apocrypha, which means they're apocryphal or mythical. But the key point is, all of this didn't just happen to happen. God used all of this history to prepare the world for the spread of the gospel. 
Our key verse says, it's not by force or by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, God doesn't always directly cause everything that happens in history. If he did, there would be no such thing as sin, which is when humans do things against God's will. But God finds a way to use it all to advance his kingdom. So what happened here? During this time, the Greeks introduced a common language throughout the civilized world so that the apostles could travel anywhere in the civilized world and preach Jesus and there would be the, the people would understand what they were saying. It might not be their native language, but you remember the story of the day of Pentecost. In that story, people are gathering around listening to Peter preach, and it lists about 12 or 15 different languages that they all spoke. But when Peter preached in Greek, they all understood it, because they all knew their native language, plus Greek. You had to know Greek to travel, to uh, do business, to be considered at all educated. So God used Alexander the Great and the Greek conquest to prepare the way for the gospel. The Romans introduced an amazing road system throughout the world. Using that, they introduced a very reliable mail system. And they made it safe for people to travel all around the known world, the Roman Empire. Now, I say the, Rome, the known world, the civilized world, obviously the Chinese would disagree. That's, but from the point of view of the Romans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of that, that that had been conquered, that was the known world. Greek and Roman culture introduced ways of thinking that led people to begin to question the pagan religious ideas. And be open for other kinds of ideas, other kinds of religious teaching, specifically Christianity. And the occupation of Israel raised a desire among the people of Israel for a deliverer to come and kick the Romans out. Mattathias, the Jewish hammer, tried it and was successful, but it didn't last long because he wasn't the promised deliverer raised up by God. And so the Romans came in and they began oppressing them and collecting the taxes and all of this stuff and people started looking for a deliverer and praying and reading the Old Testament and they found the prophecies of Jesus. And they recognized that they were talking about a deliverer to come, that somebody that God would send, but they read it in light of what they wanted that deliverer to be. They looked for someone to fulfill the prophecies the way they wanted them to be fulfilled. Somebody to come in and kick the Romans out and literally reestablish the empire of David and sit on his throne in the temple. Or 
He didn't sit on the throne in the temple. Rebuild the temple, reestablish the worship, sit on the throne of David in the palace next door. And so that's how they read the prophecies. And they ignored the prophecies of Jesus that didn't fit that picture. Like the ones that describe his love and his gentleness. This led to a number of false messiahs. Jesus wasn't the first person to be recognized and proclaimed as Messiah. There were a number of other ones that were raised up, tried to lead revolts against Rome. Many of them wound up being crucified also. None of them rose from the dead, but none of them were successful. The other consequence of reading the prophecies the way they wanted to read them Seeing in the prophecies what they wanted to see was that when Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies the way they thought he should, they decided he was not the Messiah. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, may be the the foremost example of this. As a matter of fact, some people think the reason he betrayed him was to force Jesus' hand so he would call down the angels and and wipe the Romans out and establish his kingdom. That's what Judas was looking for. And when Jesus didn't do it the way people thought he ought to, they rejected him. Of course, during this 400 silent years, God wasn't really silent. He was still answering prayer and working in people's lives just like he still is today. He hasn't written any more of the Bible for 2,000 years. So you could say we, we're in the 2,000 silent years, but God is still obviously moving and working, and he was in individuals' lives during this time as well. As he also was using the events of world history to prepare the way for the spread of the gospel. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, I found five lessons for us to take home out of all of this. The return from exile teaches us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He brought them back through Jeremiah. He prophesied they would be in exile for 70 years and then he would bring them home. Daniel noticed that the end of that 70 years was coming up and he started praying for it to happen and God brought them home. God keeps his promises. So the first lesson is keep on trusting God. He will keep his promises. Sometimes he likes to wait right to the very last second but he will keep his promises. As you've heard me say before, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. Our second reading, Nehemiah 4, that Dave read for us. It teaches us that we live in a spiritual battle zone. So we can never let down our guard. 
When God calls you to do something, whether you are Nehemiah being called to rebuild a wall, or whether it's you in your own life being called just to live as a faithful Christian in your neighborhood, in your work, and and so on. There are going to be enemies. There's going to be opposition. You can't let your guard down. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor. Nehemiah talked about chain mail and swords and bows and arrows and all of that kind of stuff. Working with a sword belted on your side. And Paul in the New Testament says that we need spiritually to be doing the same thing. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Paul goes on and lists the various pieces of spiritual armor, truth and righteousness and preparation and prayer, things like that. We live in a spiritual battle zone. Peter writes in the New Testament that your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a hungry lion looking for whoever he can devour. You can never let your guard down. The Bible also tells us greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The Holy Spirit in you is stronger. But you can't let your guard down. So the second lesson is learn spiritual warfare and practice it. The way that the Jews misunderstood the prophecies about Jesus teaches us To read the Bible for what it says, not for what we want it to say, not for what we think it should say. It's God's word. It's not our word. Read the Bible for what it says, not what you want it to say. So that's the third lesson. Recognize when you're reading things into the Bible. Be open to interpretations that don't fit the way you would like it to be. The 400 so-called silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches us that when God seems silent, he may just be getting things ready for his next move. He used Alexander to make a common language in which the gospel could be spread. He used the Romans to create a a period of peace and transportation and mail and safely moving around to where the gospel could be spread. The fourth lesson is when God doesn't seem to be doing anything, just wait. It might mean he's getting ready for something that will blow your socks off.
And our key verse teaches us that God's plans are not accomplished by human force or power, but by God's Spirit. He uses the things people do. But that's not how things are accomplished. So the last lesson is, don't feel like you have to make things happen. Or you have to work with people who are trying to make things happen. God uses people. But the results are his. Remember what happened to Abraham when he thought God needed a little help? He had the son named Ishmael, who became the father of all the Arabs, who have been trouble to the Jews ever since. So make yourself available to God and do whatever he leads you to do. But other than that, just wait on God. Wait on his time. God always comes through. If there's anybody here who's not sure that you are a child of God, that you know this God that we've been talking about. It's not a matter of living right as we've seen through this whole Old Testament. Having all the rules, following all the rules is not only impossible, but even if you could, it's not enough. Starting next week, we're going to be into the New Testament. We're going to hear about Jesus who gave his life on the cross to pay the price that we could not pay for all of this messing up that human beings always do. If there's anybody who's not sure that you have taken advantage of that, I'd love to talk with you, pray with you about it. Let's end with our key verse one more time. Zechariah 4, 6. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Zechariah 4, 6. listening to this sermon, and I pray it blessed you. Again, I'm Pastor David Wentz, and for more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, please visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.